Hey, listeners, hope you're doing well. Wanted to let you know that this week's episode of the podcast won't be airing as scheduled. Reason for this is, like many of us, we've been feeling the effects of burnout and pressure to constantly produce stuff. So we were inspired by the recent example of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who recently stepped down to prioritize her mental health. Hey, if a prime minister can do it, we can do it too, right? We believe it's important to take care of ourselves and each other, and we want to lead by example. We want to be sure that we're always bringing you stuff that's the best content possible, and that means taking the time to recharge, refocus, all that good stuff, right? Instead of a new episode this week, we're going to be recasting an episode on how to better define mental health as a reminder of the importance of taking care of ourselves and each other. We'll be back next week with some fresh stuff, and we'll be, we appreciate you understanding. Thank you all for your continued support. Take care of yourselves, and we hope you enjoy the recast. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 236. We're recording this live on February 24th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey, Nick. It's great to hear you. Oh, thanks, Barry. Really, really appreciate that one. Uh, we got we got a great show for you tonight, barring no technical issues. We'll be talking about what the term mental health really means and its impact on human factors. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about what gets us excited and motivated about human factors, UX, your job in general, how to store research at your work, and our opinions on sign up versus sign in. But first, here's a programming note for you all. Uh, we are going to have some upcoming coverage of the Human Factors Healthcare Symposium. This is something that we've done over the last couple years. Uh, currently, we're finalizing some plans with leadership to bring you a preview of what to expect. We're going to do that sometime soon. But I do want to mention that we have asked in our Discord chat uh, if there's anything specific that you all want to hear about, uh, let us know there. And that kind of goes for conference coverage in general. If there's any sort of things that you find most valuable about when we go out to conferences and come back, whether it's the interviews, whether it's talking about specific presentations that we went to, whether it's uh, hearing about the program and what the experience was like, we want to hear about that because we want to produce content that's relevant to you and that you'll get something out of. Anyway, I think that's all I have for notes. So why don't we go ahead and get into the news? That's why you're here. Yes, it's Human Factors News. Uh, I don't need to do this. You've been here. If you've been here, you know what this is. Barry, what is the news story this week? So the, oh, the standards are just slacking now. Um, the story this week is researchers call for greater clarity over what constitutes a mental health problem. So a new review of the theoretical models used around the world to assess, diagnose, research and treat mental health problems has highlighted the vast array of approaches which exist. So by examining over 100 publications, which refer to mental health or mental illness in some way, the researchers have identified 34 different theoretical models used by practitioners, researchers and users of mental health services to understand the nature of mental health problems. Importantly, they found that there was no criteria which could be used to prioritise why one model might be used over another. This really matters, they say, because how mental health problems are understood has lasting ramifications for how people with mental health problems are assessed and supported. In view of the wide range of models that are used by practitioners, the researchers are now calling for greater clarity 
over how different and potentially contracting, uh, contrasting mental health models can be used in practice. They argue that this debate needs greater input from non-medical professionals and service users. So Nick, we've talked about mental health issues a number of times over the past few episodes. What are the, your thoughts on this greater call for engagement from the wider community? Yeah, this one's tricky. Uh, obviously, obviously, mental health has been on my mind lately. Um, and I'm really glad that we found a topic to kind of channel some of this discussion. I think a couple of weeks ago, Frank, uh, who's a previous guest on the show, mentioned in Discord that this would be an awesome topic to talk about. And um, he said that after hearing about my experience uh, with ADHD. And I'm just glad we found a story that goes well. Uh, in terms of my thoughts on how we define mental health and what they're um, mentioning here, I absolutely think this is true. I think when you think about mental health or when the common person thinks about mental health, they think about issues or or um, sort of non-neurotypical uh, thoughts, behaviors, actions, all these things. And so when we define mental health, we need to make sure that that is kind of treated equivalent to our, our physical health, right? When you right. think about being in uh, a good physical shape, meaning, you know, you don't get winded uh, doing basic activities like myself um, <laughs> or, or uh, basically that you are exercising the your body and and that is physical health and, and mental health. We need to think about exercising our mind and making sure that we are in a good place psychologically. Um, I've gone on quite a bit about my initial general impressions of the article. Barry, what are you thinking about this? I think it's it's really insightful because I think it's it's a really long overdue review. Um, the whole mental health piece is still we 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 treat it like we we know everything about it, right? Um, that that all we do, need to do is you know you go and do some exercise or you throw some drugs at it and stuff like that. And we kind of have this perception that it's um, it's well and so, but actually this highlights that we're still very much feeling our way around it. We still don't truly know. We're kind of dealing with the symptoms rather than the causes because it's still a um, a lot of work to be done. And that combined with the stigma around mental health, there is still a huge amount of stigma around mental health. And I like to think that it is a, it's born out of ignorance rather than malice. Um, that the that a lot of the the stigma, stigma is there just because we don't truly understand what's going on. But the idea that this um, that this review gives us the or has highlighted the fact that we don't have um, a decent structure to be able to um, assess which are the right models to be applying um, to to different causes, different ideas. I think is is really good. So it feels like a starting point. Um, it feels like there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think it's probably worth diving into some of those issue, issues around mental health, their understanding. So I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a any sort of insights. Yeah, I do want to kind of preface our discussion today. I know a lot of people are probably listening and saying, well, what does mental health really have to do with human factors? We're going to jump into that. But really, I want to kind of understand the foundation of mental health and um, I'm not going to read this verbatim, but I'm going to jump around a little bit. This is from mentalhealth.gov, which is, uh, I, I would imagine, you know, a government funded uh, effort to understand mental health. And so I think when we kind of think of our traditional understanding of mental health, this is kind of what they're saying, right? It includes our emotional, psychological, social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, act. Uh, it also helps determine how we just how we handle stress, relate to others and make choices. Um, 
And this is a really important thing at every stage of life, from childhood and adolescence all the way through adulthood. And, uh, you know, they go on to say, over the course of your life, if you experience mental health problems, um, basically your thinking, your mood or behavior could be affected because of what's going on in your head. Uh, and there's a lot of different things that go into mental health, right? So like biological factors, genes, brain chemistry, those types of things, life experiences, trauma is a big one. Uh, abuse is another big one or family history with with mental health issues or I shouldn't say issues. I shouldn't say issues. Mental health uh, problems is what they say here. Um, so obviously, you know, one big caveat to all this help is available. Uh, there are resources available and um, we'll link some of those in our on the description of the show notes here. Uh, but, you know, I, I beyond sort of the textbook definition of mental health, I do want to kind of mention that. Um, some, some interesting stats here, all of us, everyone on this planet has mental health. Uh, and that's something to remember. Uh, we, we all have this mental health. And when you think about everybody on the planet, approximately 25% of us will experience some difficulty with mental health. And, you know, for like getting into my personal story, I didn't realize that something was wrong until I started reading other people's experiences around, um, for me, it's ADHD. And I didn't understand that thinking in certain patterns or hyper-focusing on something or um, sort of rationing out in my brain, these certain things weren't neurotypical. Um, and it was very surprising to me. And I mean, statistics like this kind of go to show it. I didn't know I was one of those four. Um, and so I don't know. I, there, there's help available. We'll link that. But um, anything to add to the understanding of what mental health is before we kind of get into the human factor side of this whole topic? No, I think actually it's almost just to reinforce that last, last piece of what you said is that um, mental health and mental health problems are, are clearly they're, they're related, but just having um, an appreciation of your mental health, everybody needs to do it. In the same way that we, you know, we think about fitness, or maybe I should think about that fitness thing a bit more. Um, and you know, eating healthily again, I need to do more of that. We need to think about, um, we need to think more about our mental health and and, and that type of thing. Just because we, th we, what I quite like is the fact that now the the term mental health is so common in our vocabulary, and actually younger generations as well are more, much more aware of mental health, and and the fact that you need to be aware of it. Um, is a really, really good thing. And I would just strongly encourage everybody to be um, just willing to talk about it um, because, it's, like I said, it's something that we want to hide um, because, as you quite rightly say, everybody has mental health and we need to keep, we need to keep that healthy and, and, and be self-aware. Um, as, you, as, as you said, there's, um, there's issues that I've not realised have been going on until you, until you reflect somebody else's position. Um, and it can be quite a scary thing to try and talk about and admit, admit such things. But I think these things are getting easier. Anyway, should we dive into some of the um, how mental health affects human factors? Yes, let's do it. Do you want to do you want to just kind of give us a brief state of, of mental health and human factors? And then we can kind of dive into some specific examples. Yeah, there's some. So to look at the gene generic bit, there's uh, there's many applications for applying human factors to mental health care. Um, but there's actually not a lot on how mental health impacts our ability to do things, um, how to use things before our jobs, um, monitor systems. 
Um, there is a, a decent resource at humanfactors101.com um, where they talk about um, uh, mental well-being in the workplace, particularly through COVID-19. But it's worth highlighting some of the the obligations, particularly for an employer, um, what you've got to be aware of. So employers do have a responsibility to ensure the mental well-being of their staff. And and actually, that's quite a, a sensible thing, isn't it? Because give, certainly given a lot of what we're doing, you'd think that it would be a, a number one priority. Um, in many countries, employers have a legal duty to ensure the health and safety of workers. So here in the UK, we have the Health and Safety at Work Act um, that requires employers to secure the health, including mental health, safety and welfare and employees whilst at work. Um, and amongst other things, basically provide that safe place of work, ensure you've got safe systems of work and provide information and training. And interestingly, we've just done our annual training on on, on this type of thing, which is, which is quite good. Um, in Australia, organisations have obligations to do what is reasonably practicable uh, to eliminate or minimise work-related um, risks to health and safety. This would include any psychological risks created by COVID-19. So, but it is worth noting that all the laws only set a minimum standard. Um, you, the, the, and there's nothing to stop you going um, above and beyond these by setting um, greater improvements across a whole range of measures if you want to take uh, additional actions. But a recent study by the World Health Organization estimated the depression and anxiety disorders cost the global economy over a trillion dollars each year in lost productivity. So there's clear business benefits to be able to manage mental well-being. Uh, alongside, and that's aside from the, the moral and legal issues. So, the, I mean, fundamentally, the, the drive, the, there is a drive on employers to make to not only look at the physical safety of what you're doing, but the, but the mental health um, application as well. Yeah, would be easy to do, wouldn't you? Yeah, I want to jump in here. So from thank you for covering the UK side of the house. I want to mention the US side of the house for a second. Um, there, So we have something similar. We have Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That's OSHA. Um, and they have a bunch of standards for workplace. And when you think about mental health, that's uh, maybe... I don't, I don't want to call it a gap. It's not a gap in OSHA. They have it covered in several standards. I'm looking at one right now, 1904.5, which is specifically looking at determination of work relatedness. And so um, if you want to go look it up and read it for yourself, you can. But I'm just going to kind of briefly mention here that when they mention mental health in this capacity, they're they're basically asking if there's a situation um, where an injury or illness occurs in the workplace um, that is sort of uh, work-related, right? So is is it related? Is it covered under one of these things? Um, if the illness is a mental illness, uh, it's not considered work-related unless the employee voluntarily provides the employer uh, with an opinion from a physician or other licensed therapist or professional who can um, basically vouch that the mental illness is work-related. And so when you think about it from the U.S. side, we don't really have that same kind of protection in place, which is uh, yeah, not great. How, how do you define the difference? And I know we, we sort of get into discussion to a certain extent, but how do you really define the difference between whether something is a, a mental health issue, is work-related or not? Because it's so, you know, from a mental perspective, how it's no, you can't compartmentalize between <laughs> life and home life in that way, can you? Um Look, I mean, if you get a, if you get a therapist to sign off on it, then you're good. But the, the well, issue yeah. is that there's no obligation. There's no standard 
that yeah. is is meant for mental health that says an employer has an obligation to protect the mental health of their employees. So that's just a picture from the U.S. side of things. I just wanted to mention that in relation to your previous points there. I do want to jump into kind of well-being at work in general. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these, you mentioned it, right? There, there's little separation between uh, work-life balance in some cases and how do you really pick apart which one's which. There's a lot of aspects of work that kind of contribute to some of these mental health issues. Um, and, you know, as we saw with the pandemic over the last couple of years, this has really kind of flared up a lot of it. Um, you know, th there's additional impacts uh, on people in the workplace. Now they're, you know, people are working from home. There's different family uh, dynamics that are happening now between um, people who maybe, you know, weren't at home before and are at home now. And there's children in the picture and it's it's a whole mess. But I again, I want to kind of get away from the COVID situation because there's a lot of application here outside uh, in like a typical um, working environment as well. And uh, just I, there's a whole laundry list here of ways in which um, the working environment can support well-being um, or lead to mental health issues. And I want to mention a couple of these just right off the top, just to kind of go through this list almost. And and um, maybe we can pick apart some of our favorites, but I'm going to read off just a couple here. So there's a, a lack of clarity about roles and responsibilities can contribute to mental health issues, uh, changes to those roles, routines, pr procedures, uh, or expectations set on employees, longer working hours, extra shifts, overtime, changes to work location. So like working from home, um, being not able to take uh, annual leave. That's also a contributing factor here. Increased workload, work pressures, obviously those types of things. Um, taking on additional duties, responsibilities with insufficient training. Increased threat of workplace discrimination, aggression, or violence from customers, clients, or patients. Um, fear in the workplace. They, they talk about this in, in relation to COVID-19, but I imagine this applies to other things about sexual identity, uh, gender, um, all those types of things as well. Concerns about exposure to COVID-19 um, while on public transport. I argue that that's, you know, outside of the workplace, but still relevant because you need public transport to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, more COVID-19 specific stuff. Uncertainty about your employment. Um, so that's a, that's another big one. Financial worries uh, due to unstable or reduced employment, extended absence due to furlough, rapid decision making uh, that is required of the employees, logistical issues, obtaining materials, making difficult choices in healthcare settings. Wow, that's a heavy hitting one. Uh, mm -hmm. We got the healthcare symposium coming up, y'all, if you want to hear about some of those. Uh, serious illness or death of work colleagues and witnessing the serious illness of, or death of patients in the healthcare sector. So, wow, that is a huge list. Um, there's there's other factors too. We'll get into those in a minute. Barry, I, I want to talk to you really quick. Are there a couple in this list that you want to focus on a little bit and talk through? Yeah, I mean, the for me, the two that hit is the working longer hours. And that really work, links in with this working from home um, around COVID. And so we, we're going to have the, the new normal whatever this, the new hybrid working looks like. And I think that's going to be going for a while. And and there's a bunch of things around the whole working from home piece that um, that a lot of people are saying, oh, you should get back to the office, this, that, and the other. But in some respects, I kind of, 
there's a level of me agreeing with that because people tend to overwork when they're at home. So if they're if they're at home, particularly if their home setup is maybe on the dining room table or it's in the at the end of the living room, it's a desk in, in the same room as where that where you socialize. Um, people end up generally working um, longer hours than what you would do in the office because the office you can put the computer down, you leave, and you go. Uh, whereas if with the whole working from home, we people have found that you're going to be working longer hours. So um, I think that whole changing to the work location mixed with the longer hours actually is is something that you can see how that would burn people out and, and make that go longer. So I think that is something we should particularly be aware of. I've got a bit of a a bandwagon thing at the moment about whatever this new normal looks like um we need to work out about how to ensure people's safety at home um not just physical safety but that um our um mental health safety um around that just around the the bits you works i think it's it's easy to guilt people into into working longer is there anything in there that that particularly uh, tickled you off, Anthony? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, it's 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 hard reading through this list and not trying to identify with some of them because at <laughs> some point I've identified with a lot of these. You know, barring some of the the more uh, serious ones in like a healthcare setting. Um, but you know, I I think certainly a lot of us have experienced. Um, some sort of lack of clarity around roles and responsibilities, especially as human factors practitioners. I think a lot of times it's our job to kind of come up with who's doing what and how that whole process happens. Um, And so, you know, that comes with the job, but it's also kind of, uh, I guess, unsettling to not know (laughs) something set in stone. Um, you know, another one that's interesting to me and, and relevant to me is is uh, uncertainty about employment. Like I have in my head, uh, you know, I, I have a network of connections. I've, I'm not afraid of finding another job. But, you know, when you work on contract work, it's it's sort of this um, this really intense pressure on you to not only finish up the project that you're working on, but to find another job in that same time frame. Yeah. So that way you have continued work afterwards. And I know that has burned out a lot of colleagues of mine, um, that uncertainty about employment with uh, continuing on uh, through contract work. And that's that's kind of another one that I wanted to bring up. And I'm bringing these up through the lens of human factors professionals. Um, you can kind of look at this list and think of a lot of different things that can really impact your ability to work and your mental health. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? All these are human factors issues. All these can yes. be solved yeah. with with human factors applications, right? Well, Absolutely. most of them anyway. Um, let's Let's talk about other impacts that kind of contribute to mental health, but maybe outside the workplace, but could still impact your, your, um, your performance at work. So in the case of the pandemic, right, we all have social isolation from family, from friends, uh, sort of an increase in domestic violence. That is something that we saw numbers spike uh, early, early days of the pandemic because everyone was not used to being in the same space. Um, It's really sad. You also have sort of uh, pressures for caring for independence, sick relatives, those types of things, Um, childcare, homeschooling, uh, and employment, all these things are kind of competing interests uh, for time and energy. You have uh, illness or bereavement for family and friends, uh, and and this is especially true during the pandemic as well. And um, 
you know, kind of uh, just a just a general note to kind of top off this whole section here. Um, basically, when when you have poor mental well-being or poor mental health or whatever you're attributing, uh, whatever you're calling it, um, there, your ability to perform some of these some of these everyday duties is compromised. Um, you know, a, a lot of these are influencing um, your your human performance, right? If you think about human factors terms, it's weakening your human performance in the workplace and in your personal life as well. And so if you address some of these factors, any of these factors, really, it's going to improve that reliability of the human to do their job um, and really just function properly. Right. If you think about a human functioning, uh, to the the ability to function properly is probably what we're talking about most here. Um, and and this, if you think about sort of jobs with high risk uh, or high safety critical incidents, like mm-hmm. I don't know, a pilot or a doctor or you know TSA or something where you know it really is mission critical that you are on on in one hundred percent good health, um, or firefighter. Yeah, any one of these yeah, yeah, first responders, yeah. there could be a, a variety of different professions in which, um, you know, these contributing factors are really going to make or break uh, even saving a life. And so we got to think about all these things holistically, um, all these different issues that impact mental health and then also how mental health impacts our performance on the job. Okay, I've talked a lot, Barry. I want to give you an opportunity to kind of clean up if there's anything in this section before we like kind of move on to uh, actually discussing the article itself. Yeah, I think this um, really does highlight really there is a um, a strong responsibility as uh, an employer and colleagues actually to look out for each other. But the we should be driving um, in the same way as we do from a physical aspect. We encourage the the, the right setup of the desk. We do. Uh, um, DSE assessments, all that, all that type of stuff from a health and safety perspective, and we physically ensure that our employees and and our staff and our colleagues physically are set up to do this properly. We should also be doing this from a mental health perspective, and, and we as human factors practitioners are in a, an ideal position to to push that through. Um, and really, the 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 argument to the employer um, should be quite easy because, as you quite rightly just said. If if we are um, if we're suffering from um, you know not necessarily mental health uh, you know mental health problems as such in, in the the full on form but even just that um, poor mental health well being our performance is isn't on top so therefore we're not being as productive as we could be in the workplace um, so the, there is a, a value for money thing there for employers to ensure that everyone's in um, tip top mental health form because you'll be more productive so you know that argument said so i think there is we as, as human practice practitioners probably have a bit of a job to do in in flying this banner a bit more than possibly we have been doing to date that is a huge understatement so i'm we're cutting content for time but if you're sticking around on our live version or if you're listening to this later our patrons get the full audio version um if you're listening to this later listen to the post show or go go find us our post show on on any of our video platforms uh, we're going to be talking about things like risk assessment uh communication consultation work design mental well-being resources um all that stuff as it relates to human factors issues on this story. We just got to cut a little bit for time, but I do want to have, make sure we do have some time to talk about the article itself. Um, so getting back to this main issue of like, how, how do we categorize 
mental illness or how do we define it? And sort of also, how do we sort of standardize these models, right? Um, you know, for, for a lot of us in terms of uh, our, our knowledge from a psych background, right? We know of the DSM and that's kind of like, I don't want to say the Bible, but it is a a reliable source for some of these um, maybe more uh, abnormal. I don't even want to say abnormal. It's just it's a less typical Mm -hmm. um, neurodivergent mental health patterns. And so there's that. But I think what this article is saying is that we need to go beyond that. We need to look at some of these models um, themselves and and talk about what are mental health problems what counts as a mental illness um you know what what kind of impacts do these have within healthcare those types of things uh Barry are there any sort of cherry picked talking points that you want to bring out uh from this article itself so i think there is there's the one element that you just touched on there is being very almost careful in our language or allowing us to define that language a bit better around what is just what is what are things around just mental health about allowing us to be um, more reflective on on mental health and what help you know what helps and detracts gives us better or worse mental health in of itself in the same way that you know going going for a run will make you a bit bit fitter and all that sort of stuff so just general how how do we affect that and then get get into the difference between right well what's a problem what's an illness um, and really being able to define that in the same way as we would physically but. What I thought was interesting around the article was the was a bit at the end is the, the fact that we have a broad range of perspectives around um, who does this. And what the um, researchers are suggesting is that rather than just you rather than just engaging with um, doctors and, um, and specialists, we should bring in um, opinions from those people who are outside. So from the people who use the services and, and what they highlight is that could be um, um, a real issue for for them in the long term, but actually might be a way to go in the um, in the short term. What about you, Nick? Is there is there anything there that that uh, strikes you that we we should be um, highlighting before we uh, finish this bit? Yeah, I do want to kind of follow up on that point, right? Of of uh, not necessarily counting on specialists and and researchers, but asking um, service users which which model they feel to be most appropriate for them, right? And I think kind of it's almost like democratization of models. Um, and I think that's really helpful, right? You think about these models as like tools in a toolkit, not necessarily the end-all be-all. And when you kind of take that approach, people can sort of think about mental health in the way that's best suited to them. And, um, you know, the, the one thing that this might have consequentially is... is um, you, you might think that the non-medical models might become a little bit more important <laughs> or quote unquote important than um, the, than some of these clinicians would be willing to accept mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it is, it is kind of based on the subjective um, experience of, of the person. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's also, there's all sorts of models, right? There's biological, psycho, psychological, social models. Um, and, if, if you think about these models kind of fracturing, right, the researchers are, are showing that this this these types of models are fracturing into different um, 
different sub-models, if you will. And they're thinking about this this field being dominated by psychiatry, psychology. Um, you really need to bring in the perspectives of the people who are actually experiencing these issues and other professionals in 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 other settings like nurses or uh, social workers who experience this on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and you need to have them be heard uh, to kind of incorporate their feedback into this um, larger discussion about what constitutes mental health. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's really all I had about the article. Barry, any, any other closing thoughts? No, not in particular. I think it's, um, it's a really good, I think starting point. I like the idea in in this particular element that we are, you know, we spent a long time developing um, approaches and different bits. Now feels like an appropriate time to go back to basics, almost restructure, look at refresh of what we're doing, to, and to see whether we can. We now know more and can apply things better. So I look forward to hopefully at some point, maybe you know, six months time or something, um, being able to maybe revisit this and seeing where we've got to with it. It, it feels like an exciting time. Yeah, I agree. Um, I do want to just pose the question to you in Barry's words. How would you define mental health? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Um, I, 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 clever Barry wouldn't. Um, but no, <laughs> for me, it's the whole, um, it's everything that we, we do. Is, it's what defines us, actually, as people. Um, because everything that go, it, it's about us, um, feeling at comfortable with ourselves and and what we do on a day-to-day basis because if you're feeling um comfortable with being and free enough to express yourself do what what it is that you want to do um work in the way that you want to work and just generally exist in a way that um is it doesn't necessarily have to be you know exciting to you all the time or but just content um i think that that puts that means everything is sort of in equilibrium in some way um and so it's it's but it's still that it's it's still a big unknown for me i i there's loads of different definitions and i'm going to bow out at this point damn barry you stole my answer no (laughs) I I, i think ultimately if you think about mental health to me you're you kind of hit it with that equilibrium comment you know there you're going to experience a wide range of um either ailments or or sort of phases where there's little to no um issues or problems that you experience and i think to me um what mental what healthy mental health is is somewhere right in the middle where you don't let one strong feeling on either side of that gamut really pull you in the direction so hard that everything else in your life is is kind of impacted by it. Um, that is the simplest way I can put it. I'm not an expert. Barry's an expert, expert, but not in, in mental health. <laughs> We're not <laughs> mental health experts. Let's put it that way. Um, and so with that, you know, I think we kind of handled this delicately. There's a larger conversation to be had. I'm excited because we got to talk about it in the human factors lens. Um, but with that, let's let's move on. I just want to thank our patrons this week. Uh, for selecting this topic. We've been looking for a mental health topic for a while. And thank you to our friends over at University of Bath for our news story this week. If you follow, if you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on the weekly roundups that we put on our blog. You can also join us in our Discord for more discussion on these stories. 
We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patrons, Michelle Tripp. Uh, you know, I, I do want to mention, we always talk about Patreon, um, and and I want to mention another resource for you all. I think uh, one thing that kind of goes often undiscovered is our website. We have a an awesome website with a bunch of functionality built in for you all. Uh, you can um, do all sorts of fun stuff over there. So uh, some of the things that are kind of standard for most podcast websites, you got detailed show notes, including links to any guests that were on this week. Um, some embedded YouTube videos that kind of link up with the episodes. So you can see how handsome Mr. Barry is. And, uh, you know, um, we also got other things on there, uh, aside from the podcasting stuff that we do, all the stuff that comes out of the digital media lab. That's what we put on our website. So we have, uh, news roundups, weekly roundups, monthly roundups. And this is a good opportunity to check in with some of the other stories that we may not cover on the show. You know, we used to do three stories, I think, in one week on the show, which actually was kind of insane now that I think about it, because it was no uh, <laughs> there's no way you could cover those in depth. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, now that we're doing one story a week, I think it's, it's much, much better. Um, there's, let's see here. Uh, like I said, additional information on our guests, there's deep dives onto different topics that we have. And, um, there's ways to submit your own stories on our website. So if you come across something that's human factors related, you want us to talk about it, you want us to know about it. There's a way for you to submit it there. Uh, you can go in, search all the episodes, uh, for content. If you want to learn more about mental health, um, you can go to our website and search it. <laughs> uh, we have conference recaps on there. I'm going on, right? It's just, if it's been a minute since you've checked out our website, or if you don't know that we even have a website, go check it out. It's humanfactorscast.media. It's a .media website. It's not .com, uh, but humanfactorscast.media. Again, we'll put the link in the show notes, but again, a, a really valuable resource. Just wanted to make sure that the community knows about it. Speaking of the community, we're going <laughs> to, we're, we're going to get into this next part of the show. We like to call. It came from. It came from. Ah, yes, it came from. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet or we've already searched. It's not like we're actively searching in this part of the show. We've already searched. We got it for you. Uh, and and this is where we find uh, topics that the community is talking about. If you find any of these useful, uh, be sure to give us a like to help other people find this content. Okay, we got three up this week. First one is a question uh, for established professionals. Uh, what has gotten you excited about UX 
and your job in the last quarter. This is from Hither and Yan on the user experience subreddit. We're going to apply this to human factors as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as, as the subject says, I'm just trying to amplify my, my interest in work right now, and I'm curious what's been getting you going. So, Barry, how do you stay motivated at work, uh, and how do you stay motivated in human factors and with your job in general? So the well, the human factors bit is easy, I think, because everything that we do, because you, you can apply what we do to pretty much anything. Then a lot of the a lot of the fun bit around human factors is is getting the nitty gritty of right what are the human issues around be this anything to do with like say an unmanned system or all the way through to a um a uh, a piece of uh, equipment in your kitchen there is a, there's generally that that bit but around the job itself um in the it, i keep myself motivated by a not having my project being too long um and about having more than one thing on the go at any one time and so generally as much as i love all of my projects and they're all like small children to me and, and i care for them dearly some of them can get a bit annoying um and that, that that happens with any sort of long project and a long project for me is maybe uh typically said maybe any 18 months to two years and so if i've got something going like that i generally like to have something else to um, at least one other to, to put into the mix and that means that when you're getting maybe a bit um a bit tired of of one project rather than having to keep slogging on with it you can take a break by going to do something else and and keep mixing it up and i think that's generally what you've got to do is is mix up what you do the our field allows us to basically take on a broad variety of jobs that um that that just keeps everything fresh and you'll find a new problem a new a new issue and ways of applying what you do generally into a new domain so yeah, I think that's what that is one of the massive selling factors about human factors and UX is the fact that we are so broadly applicable that if you get bored or you get frustrated or whatever happens in one domain or job or something else, you can then go on and, and do the same thing somewhere else quite easily. What about you, Nick? What, what gets you excited about your job? That's a great question. And, and I want to comment on one of your points there about... Um, our work in general is working on a bunch of different things. And you're right, uh, except in the case where you are working for a company and it's one product. There's still variety within the product, but you're still working on the same thing. And I think that is a little harder to um, maintain sort of this excitement and motivation to keep going. Uh, and, and really, you do have to take the approach that you're talking about here is find new things that get you excited about it. And... Um, you know, that really hasn't been an issue for me, but I know some um, it, it, excitement about the product is not the issue. I think the motivation uh, is, it, within human factors is is maybe a bigger issue. And I think, you know, for <laughs> it's easy for us. We have a podcast every week that we discuss human factors. It gives me that outlet um, mm -hmm. to discuss topics that maybe I'm not working on and still gives me kind of that that excitement of of a. Uh, connecting over another topic that so I still get my fix right um so I guess my advice would be like talk to other people um who maybe aren't working on the same thing that you're working on and if you hear about the way that they talk about it then you might get excited about that topic again right so like I don't know you're working on a product let's just <laughs> I don't know you press you press a button it does something <laughs> it's very simple right 
But what if that something is is so beneficial to that person's job? I'm describing a user here, by the way. Um, so beneficial to that person's job that they would love to have that button. They just want that button. Um, well, then your motivation should be to make that button the best button it could be in the right place so that way that person can do their job. Bad analogy, probably. I don't know. I, I I get motivated talking to the people who actually use the product. That's my point. I get I get motivated by talking to users to um, you know, the, the work that we're doing actually matters. I think that is is the part that really just gets me to get up in the morning. All right. Uh let's get into this next one here. This one's titled Long-Term Archive of Research Outputs. This is by Fox91, again on the user experience subreddit here. Uh, they're wondering what other teams use to store their past research efforts, uh, whether this is customer research, um, competitive analysis, or something like that. They have a wiki at their company, which works, but it's not really conducive to holding all the artifacts and such. However, it is nice because with the wiki search, uh, it makes it at least able to find an older test or a project. They use Miro, which is another tool uh, for some of their work, but they're finding that older, uh, other than titles, you can't really search within the boards. So work gets lost over time. Barry, um, storage of work and artifacts is incredibly important uh, because there might be something that you've worked on in the past that you need to go and look at. What are your thoughts on storage of documents and information at work? So you're absolutely right. It is important because it's the the potential. It's not necessarily you're going to lose stuff, but you gain you you don't gain the advantage you could get by uh, being able to quickly call up the stuff that you've done before and be able to reuse previous stuff. And you might be just crying out for stuff, and you've actually already got it within you know you've already got it within your ecosystem somewhere. So we've had this problem uh, within my company. Um, in fact, quite recently, it's something I've actually been trying to solve over wow about 10 years now about um about the thing i've i've almost come to a perfect solution for for us um we've also highlighted a couple of tools there already um i use uh we use sharepoint uh the, the the microsoft tool and really what we've done and you could do this with it doesn't have to be sharepoint i don't think it could be um you could do it in google uh, google drive and, and things like that as well but we've set up the way that we've um we deal with projects in a slight not a not in a closely regimented format, but in a way that we can um, pick up a project, show that it's live, but when it then dies down and, and finishes, that we can archive that project in in such a way that nothing truly disappears. We do a cleanup job on the project now because it's within our process. So you get rid of all of the, you know, the nif-naf and trivia, the, the, the various document evolutions that you've had. So, you you know, the stuff that you're definitely not going to use, but we still keep all the project artifacts and all the deliverables that we have, we actually extract into a, into a, into a, into a, a repository, a different repository within that, uh, within that share, same site. So that allows us to use the global um, search, search function, which will then, you know, dive into not only um, the different document names or the titles, but actually search within the documents themselves, which has just proven now really, really powerful. Um, and actually, it was this week that I was then searching for something, um, um, some research. Or it was a topic around um, around simulation, and we actually did some simulation work about eight years ago that I completely forgotten about. And um, and because we'd done this reorganization, I was able to search for it, and it popped up. And I was like, oh yeah. And 
this works on two levels. One is not only the work that you've done, so the final report you produced, the artifacts you produced, but if you're doing some sort of literature review, you might have reviewed literature already that you've kind of just forgotten about um, because it was 10 years ago. But you keep that literature in a repository and, and be able to be able to pull that out as well. So, yeah, for me, that the, the, the new the newer cloud technologies is is are working really really well. Like I said, we use now we now use SharePoint in, in the way that it, it flows, and it re, I think it's certain it, the evolution just in the past twelve months has been quite phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that, that's my solution, and I'm very evangelical about it because. It now works for me, which it hasn't done in the past. What about you, Nick? What, what do you what, what do you use for your long term archive? This it came from, brought to you by SharePoint. Um, so <laughs> I've used a variety of different things in the past. I've used wikis. I've used shared drives, uh, where stuff gets lost in folders and it's really inefficient. I've used wikis where people don't check the pages and it's really inefficient. I've used SharePoint, where people don't know where to store things or where things are stored, and it's really inefficient. The thing that I think I, I want you to take away from this is not necessarily the tool or the way in which you store the information. It's who's using it. Are they trained to use it? And can you find stuff on it? Um, there, there's probably an optimal way. I think Barry's way is probably fine and probably works best for their company. But like, for me, what I've found success with is is when you have everybody using something like a wiki. You can store things on a wiki. Um, you can link to other repositories and have information on there, an archive, if you will, of, of past projects that have worked well. You can also implement a tagging system. If you know something was like a results uh, or, or an outcomes brief, you can tag it outcomes or results or keep it consistent, but whatever it is, you can tag it and then search across all of your stuff and say, okay, well, here's, here's results from this project. Or, you know, if you, if you have a pro a certain project that you're doing for a certain contract, get a hashtag for that contract, HFC 2022, human factors cast 2022. Right. And that way you can see all the things that were associated with that project um, and be consistent about it, put it in the file name. So that way, you know, you might need to look for the methods that you did for HFC 2022 and you can type in hashtag methods, hashtag HFC 2022, go back and find it really easily uh, because you have put it in the file name or, you know, at the header of the document. And if it has robust enough search, if your platform has robust enough search, it will find that really easily. Um, that tagging is is really crucial too, um, especially when it comes to user feedback, but that's a whole other separate thing. You can, you can, <laughs> that's not file storage. That's analysis. We'll get into that another time. Um, that's my thoughts on it. I don't know. Uh, let's I get into the, Well, just before we do that, the, yeah. the I think the most important bit that probably both of us come out with is none of this happens by accident. You, It takes a little bit of planning. It takes a little bit of thought. It might take a little bit of evolution, but it does take... Uh, don't, don't like the process word, but it does take a little bit of agreeing a process and working with it to, and and then briefing everybody else into it so everybody uses it in the same way. No matter what platform you use, um, it's a get the process right, and then everything else actually you re, you reap the rewards later on. Yeah, agree. Uh, this last one is something that we don't typically do, but we're going to do it anyway. Th this question is: 
Why is sign up ultra prominent nowadays, but sign in gets buried? This is by Adequate Elderberry on the user experience subreddit. We don't typically like talk about UI stuff too much. Mm. Um, they say, hello, UX folks. I've noticed over some time that a lot of popular platforms seem to be uh, making account creation procedures more and more central. Boulder, eye-catching, etc. The reasoning here is not too hard to understand. They all want more users and are streamlining the processes. But I'm baffled why they often don't they, why they often do it at the expense of a login procedures for existing accounts. It's gotten to the point where I'm actually annoyed having to look up some uh, small non-bold sign-in text link in the upper right-hand corner or something like that. I also noticed that the wording in general seems to shift from register slash login to sign-in versus sign-up which brings no obvious advantage, but they're, uh, but is more likely to get mixed up. So please tell me from a professional human factors or UX perspective, is there any underlying rationale behind some of these developments that escapes my layman's awareness as there is so often in UX? So from my perspective, I think it's the majority of it is because we now use make so much use of auto, auto sign-in. Um, the actual times you go and click in the actual signing button um, is so limited compared to um, when you first land on on something and they really want to drive you into um, to signing up and, and moving forward. Especially now there's a whole lot of prominence around using, um, you know, either your Google ID, your Facebook ID, or Apple ID, all the other IDs that already exist. They're trying to get you to, to train in with that. And because when you normally now go on it and you'll be auto logged in if you've you've already signed up then chances of you seeing that page are actually slim um very very low now um there is an interesting flip on this that there are some um some um face, uh, some pages out there now some sites out there that um in fact we've used recently that actually just trying to find the sign up element is is really really difficult yet the sign in is, is really prominent which seem to be seems to fly in the face of this to a certain extent but that also does seem to be a, a bit of a trend which i can't justify in my head as easily as i as i can justify this one but yeah i think for me that fundamentally that's what that's why it is is because so many people don't really actually see the uh, the login page now because we do the auto sign in nick have you got a different take to that uh no i have the same take i think the other piece of this um that I don't know. It's probably a back end thing, honestly, but I don't understand why at this point in 2022, we can't just put in our credentials, what we think they are. And if they exist, log in. Great. Found a user for this username. Great. Uh, if they don't exist, hey, would you like to make an account? And it's just all one unified login. Um, I, I that's as my <laughs> that's my grumbly take. Uh, I think more seriously, you know, there's. Um, I think you're right. There's there's sort of uh, uh, everyone's going to be logged into these systems 90% of the time and the 10% of the time that you're not, uh, you just got to do a little hunting. Um, and they've kind of weighed that with the uh, sort of benefit of having one of these sign up things available and easy to get to. So that way people get in their system. That's ultimately what it comes down to. I don't think we're sort of overthinking it at all. I think that's kind of yeah. it. Uh, and I think um, just in terms of the wording, right, register versus sign up. Um, I think register has a more, uh, it's a different connotation to it. It's, a, it's almost like uh, you're committing to something where signing up is like, I don't know, kind of an industry standard right now for for getting into a platform. 
that's that's my two cents. I don't want to spend too much time on this. We don't normally do these, but it was a fun one. Um, I'm I'm grumbly about it, but <laughs> it just proves that we can still do that whole UX thing. And, yeah, uh, yeah, we yeah uh, we can we can logically do, it. do stuff. <laughs> we, we do this in our day job. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> All right. Well, this this next part of the show needs no introduction. It's just one more thing, Barry. What is your one more thing this week? And I'm going to stick with one more thing. Rather my rather my two. I'm going on holiday next week. We talked about mental health and needing to refresh and regenerate and all that sort of stuff. And I'd like to say that I, you know, I, I very much volunteered to go on holiday next week. But as is my usual thing, um, I, I was told I'm going on holiday next week because apparently, who knew, I'm a little bit stressed. Um, oh. Given that it's been quite a while, and we're just coming, we're coming to the end of um, a couple of very large jobs and this that, and the other. So um, Amanda very kindly suggested in a very forthright manner that we're gone on holiday and um, so i'm really very much looking forward to it we've got a stressful couple of days just to um finish out a couple of bits of work and uh, next week i won't do i'm not allowed to take my laptop i think my phone's going to be slightly restricted um so yeah I'm, I'm 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 going to try and practice what we preach today and and go and look after myself a little bit i am I'm thrilled for you so that means you're going to leave me high and dry next week for content uh yeah i want to say don't worry about it because like i said we are trying to get um some of that uh healthcare symposium mm -hmm. uh preview out for you in place of a of a regular scheduled podcast next week so that's why we didn't put it in the programming notes anyway if, if nothing's next week you know barry's on holiday as for me um you know i i had a a i don't know it's a weird moment <laughs> over the last couple weeks um We've had some technical setbacks on the show. You know, last week it was my microphone. <laughs> and two weeks ago, it was uh, it, it was the fact that the, the service that we use to broadcast uh, kind of froze up on us um, at at uh, towards the end of the show. So we lost some content. Um, I really this has kind of got me down um, in I, I know it's just a podcast, but really we do put a lot of effort and, and time into this thing on a weekly basis. And, and genuinely it's something that we feel passionate about. And so when it doesn't go as well as it could, it, it really bums me out. It's a hobby, but it's also, you know, a way for me to connect with the community. And, um, you know, I felt like one week after another, it was something outside of our control or really just a dumb little mistake that kind of impacted the quality of the show. And, um, you know, there's a comment on Discord this week that actually made give me gave me a big chuckle, uh, and I want to call it out. This one's from Asami that says, uh, "Only some of us are bots." This was after saying that they really liked the show. So you know, it's it's always just refreshing to hear from people on the other side of the headphones because we're sitting here, we're talking into a microphone. Like I said, we put a lot of time and effort into this thing, and um, sometimes it feels like no one's listening even though we know there are we we see the numbers we know people are listening but you know hearing from hearing from you all it's like hearing from the users right like ultimately yeah, absolutely. it's uh it's refreshing so thank you um and and really that goes for anyone who's ever left a kind comment about the podcast can't thank you enough uh for your kind words uh it just it means a lot to me um so that's it that's it for today everyone uh if you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about mental health and what it and want to hear about some potential solutions to monitoring mental health i'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 174 we discussed uh researchers creating an app basically to monitor some mental health by measuring emotions 
you can always comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for a more in-depth discussion. Join us in our after show or join us on our Discord community. You can uh, visit our official website, like I mentioned, and sign up for our newsletter. Stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, just jump in our Discord. Let us know that we're doing all right. Uh, <laughs> that's really awesome. Um, you can always leave us a five-star review. That's something you can do, too. We see those, and we appreciate those. You can tell your friends about us. The more people that listen to the show, uh, we, we grow by word of mouth. So that really helps us out, too. Uh, and if you're, you're really feeling generous, you can always support us on Patreon. That financial stuff uh, helps with some of the behind-the-scenes stuff here. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are going to be in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to figure out where they can bother you on holiday? If you want to bother me on a holiday, then you can hit me up on Twitter at Bats underscore K, or you can go and listen to my podcast at 1202podcast.com. Uh, that's our website uh, for the 1202 Human Podcast. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. It depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.